Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If we haven't met, my name is Christian, and uh, welcome to Rock City. Now today, it's a weighty privilege to talk to you about the death of Christ. We've been tracing the passion narrative in the Gospel of John the last couple of weeks, from betrayal and arrest, to his trials, and to his crucifixion. And now, we are considering his death. Today, we are on holy ground, so let us be mindful of how we tread. Well, it was Valentine's Day, 2018. This was uh, pre-pandemic, and I was dating Grace, my now wife. It was our first Valentine's Day as a couple, so I really wanted to impress her. I know she loved seafood, so I took her to Donovan's at St. Kilda Beach. She ordered this seafood pasta dish that was just filled with shellfish, prawns, Morton Bay bugs, mussels, everything. The weather was beautiful. We could see the beach. We had a lovely date. And then it came time to drive her home. Now, as I was driving her home, she suddenly started coughing. <coughs> she told me her throat was very scratchy, which is strange. And a few minutes later, she said that her lips were getting swollen. And then her voice became hoarse. She realized she was having an anaphylactic reaction, which was surprising because she was never allergic to seafood. We didn't have an EpiPen or anything, so we needed to rush to the hospital. She told me she might only have a few minutes if her throat swells up and she can't breathe. So I was panicking driving. I was looking at Google Maps. It was another 15 minutes to the nearest hospital. And then the worst happened. She was struggling to breathe. 15 minutes to the nearest hospital, and she's grasping for air. Now, that moment in time will always represent to me a time of utter powerlessness. I wonder if you've ever felt that sense before. Powerless, helpless, everything's out of control. You know, at the beginning of that night, I was actually pretty feel, I was feeling pretty good about my life, pretty in control of life. My career was go going well. I finally got the girl that I've been chasing for eight years. And in one night, any sense of control that I had over my life was gone. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Well, today as we look at the death of Christ, I want us to consider another angle than what we're used to. I know we typically see Jesus' death from the terms of him being our savior, which he is. But this passage also looks at Jesus' death from the angle of Jesus being our king. Now, kings and kingdoms is such an outdated concept, isn't it? Kings and kingdoms, what is this, the 1700s? This is 2022, man. We don't have kings and queens anymore. There's democracies, there's republics. There are no kings over us. We are kings and queens in our own right, aren't we? We rule our own lives, and we don't need to be dictated by any king on how to live. We are the master of our souls, the captain of our fate. Oh, really? You really rule your own life. How's that going for you? Let me see your schedule for the next week. How much of that is really you being in charge, and how much of that is your boss? 
your clients, your family, or your fears and anxieties controlling you? Or let me see your bank account. How much of that is you being in charge, and how much of that is your mortgage, your landlord, your expenses for the lifestyle that you want? Friends, might I suggest, for all our pomp and boasting of self-determination and freedom to rule our own lives, that we are actually very poor kings and queens. And in this passage today, we're going to see how Jesus died on the cross to be your king, and how, is, how that is actually a very gracious and merciful thing. My sermon today will have three points. One, why we need a king. Two, what kind of king Jesus is. And three, how we honor him as king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, for the death that he died for us, Lord. Father, please help us see today that we need a king desperately better than ourselves. And help us see that Jesus is that king. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. John 19, 17 to 22. Oh, 18 to 22. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now what's going on here? Well, the custom in Rome is, in Roman crucifixion is to put a sign up in front of the person who is being crucified to explain the crime that the person has committed. It's a, it's a deterrence. So people who walk by are aware of the kind of crimes that will get you crucified to make sure they don't do the same thing lest they end up in the same place. So what was Jesus' crime? He claimed to be Messiah, which in Jewish language is basically a claim to be king. So you get crucified for claiming to be king under, when you're under Roman rule because the only king in Rome is Caesar. Now that's fair enough. Why then is there all this bickering between the chief priests and Pilate? Well, it's because of the exact words Pilate wrote. You see, the chief priests wanted to emphasize that Jesus was only a pretender king. He wasn't the real king of the Jews. But Pro Pilate, probably as a way to get back at the chief priests for forcing him to crucify Jesus, wanted to say that Jesus really was the king of the Jews. Now, what is motivating these two sides? It's probably what motivates the two sides that they represent, the religious and the non-religious. And what motivates both of them is the same thing. It's control and it's power. See, back in John eleven forty-eight, 48, the chief priests plotted to kill Jesus because they feared people will believe him. And if they do, what will happen? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It shows you how much faith they had in God's Messiah. They didn't even consider if Jesus actually was the Messiah. They immediately assumed that Rome will win and most importantly, take away their place and their nation. You see, the religious always say that they're looking forward to God's Messiah coming. 
And I'm especially sure that the chief priest says that all the time. They may pray for it as well. But in actual fact, they aren't looking forward to him coming. Because while God's Messiah isn't there, who's in charge? They're conquered by Rome, so Israel has no king. Who's in charge? The religious leaders are. They have authority over the Jews, and they like it. And when God's Messiah comes, they'd lose that authority. They have to surrender it to God's king, and obviously, they don't want to. Have God's king over them, or be king themselves? Which one? Well, they would prefer the latter and kill the former. And religious people today do this as well, don't we? We pay lip service to worshiping and obeying God, but in actual fact, when push comes to shove and something needs to be surrendered to Christ, we don't want to surrender it. We still live as functional kings and queens of our lives. Jesus is only a pretender king. Now what about Pilate and the non-religious? Well, the reason why he wanted the wording to be king of the Jews is because he wanted to show Rome's superiority over the Jewish king. This is God's Messiah, and he's being killed by Rome. Rome is more powerful than Israel's God. Isn't that the image that he wanted to convey to people who walk by? This is Israel's king. This is the best Israel has, and he's being crucified. Some king he is. And that's the way of the non-religious. Superiority over God. Our science, our ingenuity, our wisdom and strength means we don't need God. We're perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves so we could stop believing in these myths and fairy tales and focus on taking control of our own lives and making it better. So the tension between Pilate and the chief priest is a tension of control and power. Pilate wants to show them that Rome has true power and the chief priest wants to show them that religion has true power. But what their crave of power masks is actually a deep sense of fear. Remember John eleven forty eight. The chief priests wanted to kill Jesus because they were afraid of what would happen to them if Rome attacked. The loss of power, the loss of position, humiliation, maybe even loss of life if Rome attacked. And for Pilate, remember John 19, 12? The crowd forced Pilate to crucify Jesus, claiming that if he didn't, then he's not a friend of Caesar. Pilate was also afraid, afraid of Caesar and the consequences of allowing unrest in the region that he's governing. Brothers and sisters, these are not men of power. These are men of fear. And might I suggest to you that your desire for power and control over your own life, your reluctance to let go of things that you need to, to give it to Christ, might I suggest that it actually comes from fear. You are afraid of what will happen if you're not in the driver's seat, of what you will lose or what Jesus will force you to do if you are not in the driver's seat. And friends, this fear is perfectly normal. But I want to suggest today that the solution isn't in keeping control or maintaining power over these things. Because the reality is, like Pilate and like the chief priests, you're not really 
controlling them. You're being controlled by your fears. That grasping for control, that's making you a bad king and queen for yourself and for others. Because the reality is there is so much out of your power that to continue grasping for more will lead you more deeper into fear and anxiety. You need a better king than yourself. And Jesus is that better king. Let's have a look. Uh, John 19, verses 23 to 27. I'm only going to read the relevant parts. I'm not going to read everything. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder, soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The first reason that Jesus is that king is because Jesus is a loving king. Now, contrast what the Roman rulers do to what Jesus does. See, Roman soldiers who represent Roman rulers not only crucify those who betray Rome, they take for themselves things while the people they crucify are suffering behind them. And this is what rulers do, right? They take from their subjects and their enemies for their own interests. In August uh, 2021, there was an Indonesian minister who was sentenced to 12 years of jail time for taking $1.1 million in kickbacks relating to COVID aid for the poor. Can you believe that? Indonesia was hit hard by COVID. At its peak, it had 60,000 cases a day and 2,000 deaths a day. And the government wants to give aid for the poor who are impacted by it. And this minister uses the opportunity to make money for himself. But that's the way of rulers, isn't it? While people suffer, rulers take advantage. Why? Because of fear, because of greed, because you don't have enough for yourself to make you feel secure when you are the king of your own life. Now contrast this to Jesus. He is literally dying on a cross. So with the crucifixion, the arms are stretched wide and nailed, and then your feet are nailed. The arms being nailed and your body falling forward meant Jesus struggled to breathe. His full weight is borne by his feet, which was nailed. So imagine the pain of having the weight of your body come down on the nails by which your feet hang. And the sadistic part of crucifixion is that you are stuck between two painful positions. If your body falls forward, you can't breathe. So in order to breathe, you actually have to lift your body up. But that means putting weight on your nailed feet. So you choose. Do you want to be deprived of oxygen, or do you want the nails in your feet to go further up your legs? Now what is remarkable is as he was going through this agonizing pain, 
this horrifying suffering. He sees his mom, and he basically goes, Mom, are you okay? I'm going to die, Mom, but you need someone to take care of you. Let me use the last breath that I have, the breath that requires me lifting my body and putting pressure on the nails in my leg. Let me use that breath to make sure you have someone to take care of you. John, take care of my mom when I die. And so he did. See, in contrast to the Roman soldiers, even in his last breaths, Jesus wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about others. He was loving others. They say that young soldiers, when, they dying, when they're dying in battle, they usually cry out for their mom. And we cry out for their mom, our moms too, right? When we're suffering, we cry out for comfort, for someone to relieve our pain. In our pain, we focus on ourselves, don't we? But Jesus, rather than crying out for her comfort, he makes sure that she's taken care of instead. Friends, Jesus' love for his mom is just an image of how much he loves you. He's on that cross for you. He's suffering for your sake to make sure you're taken care of. You know, sometimes I think deep down, the reason we don't want to surrender our whole life to Jesus is because we're not sure that he loves us. We're not sure that he really cares for us or he seeks for our good. We think only we can love ourselves the most. So it's best that we stay on the throne. But this shows that even in his suffering, he loved. And it is through his suffering that he loved you and me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. I assure you of that. You can surrender your life to him. Well, it's one thing to love someone. But what good is love if you can't really do anything? For me, what good is it that I loved Grace if I didn't have the power to make it to the hospital in time when she needed it? the most. Well, thankfully, Jesus is not only a loving king, but he's a sovereign king. Now, you may have gotten the impression that Jesus is simply a victim of the power plays between Jews and Rome in all of this, but he's not a victim. He's not merely an unfortunate casualty of the politics of his time. Verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture. Verse 28, to fulfill Scripture. Verse 36, that Scripture might be fulfilled. Everything that was happening was in his power. He told Pilate last week that it is God's authority that allows him to be handed over to be crucified. He is sovereign over what's happening to him, even in his suffering. He let the soldiers cast lots to fulfill Scripture. He thirsted to fulfill Scripture. And even after his death, his bones weren't broken to fulfill Scripture. He is completely in control. And in our hearts, this is what we want, isn't it? Someone who has complete control. Isn't that why we grasp for control? Everything is so uncertain in the world, especially now. I saw a meme the other day that said, 
I really enjoyed the five minutes between COVID and World War III. Isn't that how we feel? We're just coming out of a worldwide pandemic. Do you really have to do this now, Putin? What is this world coming to? And deep down, I think we don't want to surrender our lives to Jesus either because we don't think he's in control, really, or we're afraid of what he'll do if he has control. What if he makes us suffer? If he is a loving king, and he's a king who is completely in control, then why did he suffer and die? For what purpose? Well, Jesus died to do what all kings do. Jesus died to conquer. John 19, verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, Jesus said a very peculiar phrase for his last words. He said, it is finished. The Greek is uh, tetelestai. It is completed. It is done. Now the question is, what? What is completed? What is done? What through his sovereignty was he trying to accomplish with his death? Conquest. You see, the Jews wanted power over Rome, and Rome wanted power over the Jews. And that's what power plays are, right? Till today, people trying to get power over each other. Now, Jesus probably would look at their squabbling and say, not ambitious enough. You see, the Jews and Rome, and everyone in fact, for all their desire for power, are conquered by one thing. Death. It comes to all. Jew, Rome, weak, powerful, rich, poor, king, peasant, all are conquered by death. So what is Jesus trying to conquer? Death itself. Not for himself. He's God. If, if he never became flesh, he would have never tasted death. But because of his great love for us, he died so that we may conquer death. How? Well, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And since we all have sinned, we are all to die. But Christ died for our sins in our place. And since he's paid the penalty of our sins, we can have eternal life. When we celebrate Easter next week, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And his resurrection is the assurance that our penalty has been paid in full. And it is assurance that we too will rise with him into eternal life. You know, the third reason why I think we don't surrender our whole life to Christ is that we're afraid to die. We're afraid that this life is all there is, right? We're afraid that if we don't can take control of it or stuff up this life, then we've wasted our only chance of living. But in Jesus' death, we see the death of our own mortality. We will live forever. And because of this, we can give this life to Christ. So Jesus is a loving king, a sovereign king, and a conquering king. 
How then do we live in service of this king? John 19, verses 38 to 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who came earlier, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, we hear of two disciples, two Jewish religious leaders, actually. That's pretty interesting. Now, these two disciples were actually Jesus' disciples in secret. See, Joseph was in secret because he knew his colleagues hated Jesus. They were the chief priests that commanded him to be crucified. And Nicodemus, we read in John 3, came to Jesus in the night because he didn't want to be seen as, um, as coming to Jesus. Now, what is remarkable is that they had the courage to make their following of Jesus known at his burial. You see, by asking Pilate for Jesus' body, make, Joseph is making it clear that he loves Jesus. The Jewish leaders would need to just ask Pilate, where's Jesus' body? And Pilate would tell them that Joseph has it. And Nicodemus, by partnering with Joseph here, is also stepping into the spotlight, making it obvious who he follows. You know that 75 pounds of myrrh and alloys? That is actually a very obscene amount. That's about 30 kilograms of spices. And one commentator says, that that's the amount of spice used to bury a king. So what Joseph and Nicodemus here are doing is risking their reputation and their positions of power to make sure Jesus gets the burial a king deserves. And as disciples of Christ, that is what we are called to as well, to risk our reputation and our power to make sure Jesus' death gets the honor it deserves. Now, I was actually racking my brain last week trying to figure out why they did this. You see, they were in secret the whole time um, to kind of preserve their power and position, and then they choose to reveal themselves when he died. And this was before the resurrection. They didn't know Jesus was going to rise. Why would they risk everything? Why would they risk all of the things after they were in secret for some, so long for a dead Messiah? What do they have to gain from a from honoring a dead Messiah. Then I realized I was thinking in terms of selfish power and benefit again. They didn't do this for any gain. They did this because they loved him. I remembered how we treat those that we love who have died. We don't honor them in the funeral because of any gain or any benefit. We honor them because we love them and we honor the life that they've lived. So this is how we are to honor our king. We are to love him, regardless of the cost and regardless of the benefits, because we honor the life he lived and the death he died. To continue my story from earlier, I was panicking while driving. Grace's throat was closing up. 
and I wasn't, I don't know, I didn't know how we would ever get to the hospital in time. Then as we turned a corner, we were going down one road, and Grace nudged my elbow and pointed at the window. There was an ambulance at the side of the road. It actually stopped there to help another person. So we immediately stopped in front of that ambulance, talked to the paramedics, and they gave her the adrenaline shot she needed to breathe again. She was taken to the hospital for monitoring and discharged the morning after. Now that night I realized two things. One, I don't really have the control I think I have over anything in my life. And two, I don't need to because my king does. Friends, there is a king who loves you more than you love yourself. There is a king who is more powerful than you ever will be. And there is a king who has died so you can live forever. He is a better king than you ever will be. So get off your throne and let him reign. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us a king better than we deserve, a king that loves us so much that he actually came down from his throne, became man, was crucified, and died so that we may live forever. Father, please help us see how much this king loves us, how powerful this king is, and how he has conquered death and sin. And may we honor him with our lives, and may we preserve and glorify the death that he, he de died for us all the days of our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.
It's a 